Thanks for listening in to the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. And we're a people hungry to encounter God's presence, learning to practice his ways and longing to join in his purposes for our city. You're about to hear a sermon in a series called Saints, where we're talking about what it looks like to live out a life of holiness in the world today. Each week we're approaching this subject with reference to the life of a different hero of the faith. We're really excited about this series because we believe that we're in a season of preparation for a move of God in our church, our city and our nation. And we think there's no better way to get ready than to look at the question of what it means to become a holy people. We hope this message inspires you on your journey. Now we have a real gift today uh, to have Dr. Jane Williams to speak to us. Um, some of you will already know about Jane, but Jane, Jane works at St. Melitus currently. I'm going to interview her in a second, but um, she works at St. Melitus, and St. Melitus is uh, for George and I, it's our alma mater. Some of you know that phrase, it's Latin, it means nourishing or caring mother. Now for anyone who has been uh, at St. Melitus, what you realize quite quickly is St. Melitus doesn't become your alma mater, uh, but Jane becomes your alma mater. She, is, she, she has imbued that place with the most beautiful uh, gentleness and love, a tenderness, but also uh, such an authority uh, that she carries with her. So it's such a privilege to have her here today with us. And I would just invite you, as she comes forward, would you, can we honor and thank her for coming to be with us? Jane, why don't you come forward? Now, Jane, where have you come from today or last night? Where did you come from? Where are you based? I live in Cambridge. Um, this morning, I've actually just walked up from the bottom of Mansfield Road. <laughs> That's <but> convenient. <laughs> Good. And what are you doing at the moment? I mentioned St. Melitus, but what's, what, what keeps you busy? St. Melitus keeps me really busy. Um, when I, uh, For those who don't know, just describe what St. Melitus St. is. St. Melitus is a theological college, and our passion is uh, to equip God's people, all of God's people, for the ministry that God's calling them to in a world that is desperate um, for the love of God. Um, and so we teach theology because we think that you now need actually to be able to speak about your faith with more confidence than ever before. People don't know this story anymore. They don't know about God's love in Jesus Christ. And so all Christians need to be able to be confident to articulate and share that. Um, so we train some people, like Johnny and George and uh, Bo and Joe, uh, to, uh, for ordained ministry. But we want to uh, be part of the training of all of God's people for whatever God's calling them to. Um, I should go on forever. Uh, we do that in um, London, and then um, various bishops have invited us uh, to plant centres in other parts of the country because they could see what was going on. And then we have a centre up in Liverpool, one down in Plymouth, and this is our, uh, our latest one. You very kindly offer us hospitality to come and teach here um, on a Tuesday, for which we're really grateful. Thank you. And what have you, before you were doing that, what are some of the things that you've done? I know you've had a proliferation of job titles over, over the years, but what, what have you been busy with? Well, um, I suppose I've basically been busy with um, ways of w sharing um, God's truth um, for, for most of my life. So I've, I, I've worked in Christian publishing, 
I worked for a publishing firm called Dutton, Longman and Todge back in the day. Um, I've worked for um, other theological colleges when we lived down in, in Wales. I was teaching at Trinity College, Bristol. Um, so uh, I've, I've always been interested in, in um, helping people realise that God is very exciting and not difficult to talk about. That's amazing. And what are you seeing? Maybe, maybe what are you seeing God do at the moment when you, I mean, you do a fair bit traveling and speaking different places. What are you seeing him do? I, I just have this great sense. And uh, I, I, one of the things I teach is church history. Um, and if you go back over the last couple of hundred years, every decade or so, you can hear somebody saying, the church is doomed. The church is doomed. And I want to just go around and say, well, it's doomed if God says it is. And it's not doomed if God doesn't say it is. Um, and as far as I can see, it's not doomed because uh, there are people, look, look at you all, what are you doing here? This is church. Did you know that? Did anybody tell you that this is church? Um, uh, and uh, all over, people keep coming back and coming back and coming back to this knowledge that God calls us and puts us in families like this. Um, uh, and uh, what a witness that is, what a need that is across the world. So I, I see God just never letting go, just never giving up, just constantly turning up in places where you thought that's not possible. And we should know that, shouldn't we, because of the resurrection. It's what God does. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jane. We're excited to hear from you. Jane's uh, closing up our series on saints. Um, so why don't we pray for her as she, and pray for us, just as she comes to share God's truth with us. Father, we thank you that you are the great adventure. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint Jane to speak and anoint us to hear from you. And would you bring life and healing to us and a greater passion for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for the invitation to be here. It's really, really lovely. As I, I am normally here uh, when I come, I'm norm normally here on a Tuesday teaching. Um, and we teach uh, normally from 10 till 1. So are you up for that? Are you okay if I keep... Um, George said they'd clear all the schedules so I could do my normal three-hour lecture about St. Augustine. Some of you are looking faintly panic-stricken there. I promise I won't. No, I don't promise. I'll see what I can do, okay? Um, I actually, while we were praying downstairs before the service, I actually nearly rewrote this morning's lecture completely um, because we were praying about some of the, the work going on with the children and young people. And so I nearly gave you a lecture about um, Hildegard of Bingen instead. Now, if she's not um, a name that you know, will you go away and Google her, Hildegard of Bingen? Um, she started having visions of God when she was about three or four. Um, and luckily, she grew up in a culture where people knew that's what it was and didn't try to shut her up. Um, and so uh, I, I was so thrilled to hear of what's going on in your youth and children's work here, where, again, people are um, encouraging children to speak out what God is saying to them. So it's lovely to have children here. And um, when you do your next series on saints, can I come and talk about Hildegard? That'd be okay. Um, but uh, George and uh, Johnny have suffered many times from me and my passion for Augustine, so I will uh, go back and talk about Augustine. Um, and that passage that we had read from Isaiah... Um, that passage um, could be directed to Augustine. I'm going to introduce you to Augustine as a very driven, ambitious young man who discovers the glorious love of God 
that he can rest in and share. So you, you see this Augustus, young man, Augustine, starting his life feeling that he has to buy his way, he has to strive his way to success, uh, to what he wants to do with his life. And then he encounters this God who says, why? What can you buy that's worth what I can just give you? Um, and so uh, this is the Augustine that I hope we're going to encounter today. He becomes... Um, a theologian of the overwhelming grace of God, uh, the God who simply wants to draw us into God's love, who doesn't set barriers before we get there, um, but who draws us into that love. And you know, you don't need me to tell you that you are shaped by what you love. You are shaped by what you love. So the more you love God, the more you're going to respond to that character of God. So we don't. Well, so one of the things I'd love us to think about a little bit this morning is, um, it's in this call to holiness. Are we still treating holiness as something we have to strive for and do? Or are we willing to step into the holiness that God gives us in his love? Now, those two are not disconnected. Both, both St. Paul and Augustine constantly got into trouble because people read them as saying, so it doesn't matter what we do then. Because you're saying God does it all. And they're saying... Could you, just, could you just try and listen to what I'm saying? Which is that when you love something with overwhelming passion, that's what you want to be like. That's what you want to serve. Holiness flows from that point of encounter with the holiness of God. It's not that we have to be holy first, but that God in his holiness draws us into that and we begin to shape our lives around it. So you can all go to sleep now, because I've basically done. Um, except this is such an exciting story. Augustine, um, we're, I'm talking about Augustine of Hippo, so not the one who founded the Church of England. Well, not the Church of England, the Church in England. Um, Augustine, who lived um, in the 4th, 5th century, um, and was born and brought up on, in North Africa, so along um, the coast of North Africa, in a little town called Hippo Regis. Um, and uh, we know... Uh, more about him probably than almost any other person, historical person in that period. And that's partly because of um, his own sort of spiritual, intellectual autobiography called The Confessions. Um, uh, so do go and Google that. And my advice for reading it, because you are all going to read it, <laughs> let's be clear about that, um, is that you, um, you skip. So you go for the... You, you go to begin with, just for his personal story, which is an absolutely fascinating one. And then you keep coming back about every year or so and read it again, and you get more and more into his um, intellectual excitement about God. Um, but it's a really, really good book, um, The Confessions, and there are lots and lots of different tra translations of it. So we know a lot about him, partly because he wrote this autobiography, but also um, because loads of people who listened to him preach wrote notes about his sermons, wrote them out, uh, he wrote letters all over the Roman Empire, and people kept those letters. Now, obviously, this is pre-recording, pre-printing. So these were people who realized they were encountering, encountering something they wanted to keep coming back to. And they copied them and copied them and passed them on uh, to us. Um, we know, uh, one of the things I love about Augustine is that in one of his letters, um, he says to somebody who's um, a, a, another church leader who's trying to pretend to be very great and grand, Augustine writes to him and says, come on, 
You, both, you know we both talk with a local accent. Let's not pretend that we've changed. We belong where we belong. So again, this North African boy who's influenced the whole um, of our understanding of Christianity, speaking with a local accent from North Africa. Um, one of the things that in my travels I'm constantly amazed about is that somehow we've given the world the impression that Christianity is a Western religion. It just, just isn't. Um, all its early history belongs in the Middle East. And we need to recover that and uh, acknowledge our indebtedness to it. Um, his parents were sort of respectable kind of people, but not wealthy. We know quite a lot about his mother, um, and any of us um, mothers of growing up children, our hearts go out to her. Her name's Monica. Um, and Augustine had a really strong love-hate relationship with her. Um, uh, that comes to a beautiful climax toward the, ends of her, towards the end of her life. Um, but to begin with, Monica is the thing that Augustine is trying to get away from, uh, including Monica's faith. Monica was a Christian. Um, Augustine's father, Patricius, was not initially a Christian, though he was won over by Monica uh, towards the end of his life. So Monica tells us a little bit about her own struggle, tells Augustine, and Augustine records it. She was married to Patricius, uh, who was much older than her. She was married when she was about 14. Taken into his household, where her mother-in-law was horrible to her, um, treated her like a servant. Um, and uh, Monica tells us that she began to drink on the sly, to help her get through this. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary woman. But she also said that she was profoundly convinced that her calling in that family was always to, to witness to the love and care of Jesus Christ, and therefore never to react with anger, but always to try and react out of love. And, and extraordinarily, that did, in the end, have that effect um, on her husband so that he became a Christian. Um, but all of these saints you've been looking at, I hope you've noticed they're flawed. Monica is a saint in all kinds of ways, but that didn't stop her being really, probably improperly ambitious for her son, Augustine. Um, North Africa at this point in the 4th, 5th century is part of the Roman Empire. Um, and uh, a bright boy um, from a reasonably good family anywhere in the Roman Empire uh, could go far. And Augustine was very bright, and he knows it. He tells us that. Um, uh, and uh, it's one of the things that he struggles with all his life is how to make good use of his intelligence. And so after a few years teaching um, boys um, whom he clearly despised, boys of middle-class families in North Africa, he thought they were such idiots, um, he makes a run for it, basically. He heads off to Rome. And again, in the Confessions, we're giving this, given this uh, lovely picture of his mother, Monica. He obviously didn't tell her this was going to happen, and she found out at the last minute, and he, as the boat sets sail, he can see her standing on the quay crying. Um, and um, Augustine heads off, um, taking with him uh, a young woman um, who was, whom he says was the love of his life, uh, and their son, um, a young woman whose name we don't know, and they were not married. She was clearly not of the right class. Um, to be married to somebody as ambitious as Augustine, but it was clearly a, um, a deeply important uh, relationship. And they called their son a Deodatus, which means God's gift given by God. So clearly they, they felt they were doing something um, that wasn't um, wrong, even though it was unusual. They're not so unusual in those days. Um, 
And wherever Augustine went, Augustine made friends. It's one, again, one of the things that's really lovely about Augustine. Whatever Augustine got into, um, his friends got into. So when Augustine was exploring various philosophies and heresies, his friends were exploring it with him. Um, if you're into any kind of youth ministry, look out for those people. They're the influencers. They're the ones that you really need to pay attention to, the people who gather others around them, the people who influence others. And Augustine was definitely one of those. And so when he got um, to Italy, uh, he, he made good friends quite quickly who helped him with his career, um, helped him to get quite a prestigious post in what was, in effect, um, the civil service in Milan, one of the big centres in Italy. Now, this is, again, remember, this is a, a young lad from the backwaters of the Roman Empire. He says, as I say, speaking with a local accent, he tells us that although he spoke Latin, he didn't speak Greek, and Greek was the language that the educated people of the Roman Empire would have spoken. So how bright must he have been to walk into this job in Milan? Again, really quite a significant character. Um, and in Milan, for the first time, he encountered some Christians that he couldn't just despise. He basically, up to this point, thought Christianity was what his mum did. And mom, his mum, lovely as she was, she wasn't bright. Um, and therefore, anything she believed in was likely to be a bit dodgy. Um, and so Augustine basically hadn't paid much attention to that. Um, any of you mums getting any sort of sense of... Um, uh, and uh, as a, so back in North Africa, Augustine had explored a kind of um, philosophy stroke religion called Manichaeism, um, and at this point was an adherent of this particular philosophy. And Manichees were dualists, so they basically believed that there's a constant war in our universe between the principles of good and evil, and that those are roughly equal, those principles of good and, e and evil. Again, I think you'll probably meet quite a lot of people who think something like that. Um, just to remind you, that's not what we think as Christians. We think there is only one principle from which all things flow, and that is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And nothing else is eternal, and nothing else has final significance, only God. Um, but Augustine quite liked this Manichae sect. It had an incredibly complicated mythology about where the world comes from. Uh, and part of that mythology was that the, the physical world, the, the world that our bodies inhabit, um, was created by an inferior god who wasn't very good at it, made a bit of a botch of it. Um, and that human beings have a bit of the true divine rationality, the intelligence and spirit um, of uh, the good god um, trapped inside this horrible botch, which is our bodies. And one of the things that Augustine liked about this is it, it fed into what is going to become his lifelong obsession with how do we um, get free from sin? How do we uh, learn to live with the reality of the fact that we never quite do what we long to do? We can never quite make ourselves into the people that we long to be. See St. Paul going through that as well? I think every single person goes through that. If only we could live up to what we long to be. Uh, and this understanding this, that the Manichees gave Augustine was a way of getting out of it. It's not our fault. The true me is trapped inside this kind of um, vehicle that keeps making me bang into things and do things that I don't want to do. The true me, then, is not really affected by what I do. But already, by the time Augustine got 
to Italy. He was beginning to be a bit dissatisfied with that because he knew it wasn't really true. He knew the whole of him was actually affected by what he did. He couldn't really go on convincing himself that there was a part of him that was unaffected by his interaction with other people and with the world. And so when he got to Milan, he encountered one of the great Christian leaders uh, of the 4th and 5th century, the Bishop of Milan, a man called Ambrose. Now, any of you who um, are QI watchers, um, Ambrose comes up from time to time in questions. Um, uh, Ambrose uh, was noted, and people wrote about it. They saw him praying, and he didn't move his lips. So clearly, um, in those days, if you pray, you pray aloud. And Ambrose was quite unusual in praying quietly. Uh, and Ambrose was a formidably educated um, intellect. Augustine couldn't in any way, even Augustine couldn't convince himself that he was brighter than Ambrose. He met somebody who knew more than he did. Um, and yet this man was a Christian. So here's Augustine thinking, my mother and Ambrose. My mother and Ambrose, how can these be part of the same faith? How do I um, um, compute this? He also saw that Ambrose was a massively political power, not afraid to confront the emperor. So somebody who was perfectly assured um, that God was more important than any other system of rule and government. Was willing to speak out from that position. Now again, there's this really ambitious young man wanting to get in with all those who run the power systems in Italy uh, seeing somebody apparently operating from a completely different power base. So Augustine starts to get really um, wound up and perplexed about what's going on and what he should do about it. Um, and by the time um, we get to what Augustine, what is usually called Augustine's conversion, what we've got is Augustine in a real state. I think he's probably having a breakdown, both physical, emotional, and mental. Um, it, his, his job in the civil service was as a, a rhetor, somebody who gave speeches on behalf of the government and, uh, and the local um, uh, civic society. Uh, and he began to lose his voice. That's telling, isn't it? It's almost as though his body was saying, you don't care about this. You can't go on doing this. Um, he'd read stories, some of the great heroes of the Christian faith, and thought, well, they can do it. Why can't I do it? What's wrong with me? Um, his friends, likewise, were all thinking, well, I'm not sure that this Manichaeism stuff is going to work. Um, and it, it is interesting how very often in the stories of some of the great saints and mystics, they come to this moment of crisis where they realize they are not coping um, and it's interesting because of the theme that we've been picking up today. Um, I, I'd love any of you who are feeling in that state where you're just not coping. God doesn't make this happen. But when it happens, God is not going to waste it. And what Augustine discovers is that when he had got to the point where he had to admit he is not coping, he cannot do this on his own, he is not making a success of his life, um, uh, God comes to find him. Now, by this point, Monica, you remember Monica, don't forget Monica, had turned up in Milan, and Monica um, was trying to arrange a, a, a lovely um, marriage for Augustine, a sort of advantageous marriage that would help him with his career. 
And as part of the move towards this marriage, Monica had persuaded Augustine to send this, the young woman with whom he'd been living, send her home back to North Africa. So off she went. And that's the last we hear of her. That, I mean, that's the most extraordinary thing, isn't it? And Augustine simply, one liner says that she was the light of his life. And so, again, this is part of what's going on, this breakdown uh, that Augustine is facing. And Augustine kept their son with him. Doesn't your heart go out to that woman? Heading back off to North Africa, presumably losing the love of her life as well and her child. But Augustine that closes that door at that point. But he, that, again, is part of what's going on by the time he comes to realize that he just can't cope. Um, and he never makes that advantageous marriage. Instead, he completely went off the rails socially and sexually for a bit. Um, uh, and so he brings that with him, that colossal sense of shame and failure in all parts of his life. And he tells us that he was sitting in a garden and he was weeping and raging um, and he suddenly heard somewhere which he thought was over the garden wall some children and he thought they were playing a game that he didn't, that he didn't know, that he didn't know the rules of. And the children were saying pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. And he thought, okay, well, this must be some kind of a skipping game or something that I don't know. Um, uh, but he looked around and he saw uh, on the grass beside him a copy of one of St. Paul's epistles in which, um, in, in Romans, uh, God promises Paul to set him free from the things that are constraining him, the things that he's ashamed of. And so Augustine knows this is a word directly for him. Uh, that God is offering him that freedom. Now, I don't know so I'm going to cry. This, you don't mind people crying when they preach. You're used to that here, aren't you? Yes. Um, <laughs> because um, I just find it so incredibly touching that this very arrogant young man who's despised some of the boys he was teaching, who's always thought he could make it on his own, that when God comes for him, God comes for him in children's voices simply asking him to be obedient and almost to join in God's game. There is something so revelatory about that tenderness and humor with which God approaches this arrogant young man. Uh, and so Augustine picks up and reads and gives his life uh, to the God whom he has been sort of avoiding for most of his life. Um, and... Uh, as a result of that, he gives up his huge ambitious career in Italy. He and his friends, who all come with Augustine, when Augustine finally gets it, they all get it as well, um, begin to head home to North Africa. Now, he doesn't tell us why that has to follow. He presumably could have stayed in Milan, but he just had this real encounter with a God whose way of life is just completely different and is going to take Augustine somewhere completely different, back to his humble beginnings. And before they could set sail, um, Monica died. And Augustine recounts their last time together. And basically, Monica and Augustine, in a really, really unusual situation, share a mystical vision of God. As they pray together and talk together, they come together... Augustine is perfectly clear. They come together into the presence of God. Uh, and Monica says, that's all I ever wanted out of life, actually, was for you to come to know God, and I'm happy to go home now and let you get on with it. Now, that is the most beautiful story. It's not true entirely that that's all Monica ever wanted. 
She wanted a lot more, but when she encountered God, she too realized she could let go of Augustine. She didn't have to go on organizing his life and trying to make him rich and famous. She could trust God with her son. So, um, burying his mother, Augustine and his friends set sail and they go back to North Africa. Um, and basically, Augustine never leaves North Africa again. He stays in this little town, Hippo Regis. Um, he and his friends start a small community in which they pray together, read the Bible together. Um, uh, they begin to uh, work to, for the poor. Um, the local people uh, grab Augustine and make him a bishop by force. Um, it doesn't, it's all right, it doesn't happen anymore, okay? <laughs> just, just calm down. Um, uh, and, which Augustine really didn't want, but he could, again, he could see that he had become a big fish in a small pond back in North Africa. He was a person who could take on heretics, who could take on those who were despisers of Christianity. He could out-argue them. He could bring people back to God. And the church thought, we need this. And Augustine submitted to that. Um, and throughout these early years as a bishop, Augustine and his friends living together, praying together, eating together, building this community together. Um, so that's another thing I'd love us to take home with us, is this sense of how important friends are. Um, that, that sense of growing together, that group of um, people for, to whom Augustine is accountable for the person he's becoming in God. If you haven't got such a group of people, could I ask you to start praying about it? Um, and you'll find that as you encounter them, they've been praying the same thing. They've been praying for people to help them to be accountable to God for what they're doing with their lives. So never underestimate the importance of friends. That's one of the, the reasons why you come to church. And these friends, um, as they, uh, they became hugely influential. So it's not just Augustine that, begins, that is converted and begins to change the shape of society in North Africa. All his friends go out to lead churches all over that region. So the impact of uh, this one man's conversion and his gift for friendship. Um, and so for the rest of his life, Augustine basically lives in this small place, transforming it. He preaches regularly in his cathedra. And what I'd like you to imagine is I'd like you to imagine a large sort of rambling building with a seat in the middle of it. That's what the cathedra is. Cathedral is the teaching seat, the bishop. And of course, this is a largely illiterate society. So what Augustine is doing is preaching and teaching them the Bible. Hundreds and hundreds of sermons helping people uh, to encounter God through scripture. Um, uh, and we know that the um, that they, the people were not all as polite as you because we've got people who wrote down Augustine's sermon. So they would say, hang on, I didn't get that bit. Could you say that again? Or, no, I, I don't think that's true, actually. I think you've got that a bit wrong. Um, and we get the, because we get the interruptions written down as well. And I do actually think, don't, don't start today, start next week, um, <laughs> that we should encourage that a bit more, um, a bit more interaction because um, it is, I, I'm a lay person myself. I don't do a lot of preaching. Um, I, so I know, maybe none of you do this, it's actually perfectly possible to sit and let everything go in one ear and out the other. Um, and maybe that's sometimes the best thing to do with a sermon, truthfully. But, um, <laughs> they're not in this church, clearly. Um, but um, uh, I'd love us to think about how we might respond and whether we want to interact a bit more with what is being said so that it becomes our own in a particular kind of way. Um, and he, so he did a lot of teaching, a lot of preaching, a lot of writing... Um, he was a great 
um, battler against heresy in the area. There was a whole um, um, sort of alternative schismatic kind of church when he got back to North Africa. And by the time he uh, died, they had become part of his church, the one church. He set up monasteries and convents a lot of the time to help educated, educate the young and the poor. A lot of refugees in that part of North Africa as uh, the, the vandals began to invade Rome. A lot of people um, fled to North Africa. Does it sound a bit familiar? Um, the world, those patterns of the world and Christianity attempting to be at the heart of loving care for that. Uh, and of course, Augustine um, had no idea uh, that he was going to be one of the most influential theologians of all time. He wrote massive books, not just his autobiography, but the massive books on the Trinity, on a whole history of culture, a whole theology um, of, of the understanding of God's action in the world, um, which have come down to us and influenced all generations of theologians uh, to come. And Augustine didn't know that. He thought he'd given up that ambition by coming back to North Africa and because he was willing to give that up, God was able to use him in quite extraordinary ways. If he'd stuck with being a rhetor in Milan, he might have been a good Christian, but I doubt if anybody would have heard of him. Um, so again, God's providence is really quite weird at times. Um, was Augustine holy? Well, you see, I, don't, I just really don't know. Um, he got into huge trouble with other Christian leaders for writing this book, The Confessions, um, because the pattern of the way that you told stories about great Christian leaders in the 4th and 5th century um, was you told their heroic deeds. So the bestseller of the day um, was a book about St. Anthony of Egypt, who was one of the earliest of the Desert Fathers, who went out into the desert uh, and did battle with the demons and overcame them and went for weeks without eating, and when people encountered him, he looked the healthiest person imaginable. That was the kind of book uh, that Christian leaders were meant to have written about them. And so you can see why people thought, this, this Augustine telling us he had an affair, um, that he, he flirted with other kinds of religions, um, that, that, that we don't want this kind of book, this doesn't help at all, but Augustine was convinced that we do want this kind of book. And this is precisely uh, what we need. One of the things that Augustine says that he encountered when he really at last opened his heart um, to uh, God uh, was what he calls the humble God. He talks about I, um, some of the parallels between the way in which the divine is talked about in some of the philosophies that he knew. But he said he never found this anywhere else. The humble God who comes to live beside us um, to, Augustine calls it, he builds, um, God built himself a house of our clay. This is our clay, our bodies. You're imagining a kind of wattle and daub kind of hut that God has built for himself so he can come and live next door. Um, and Augustine says, all the other ways we have of talking about God require us to do something to try and match up to this God, to strive, to try and understand, to try and do heroic deeds. But this humble God... It's just next door. You, all you have to do is stretch out your hand and you find there's a hand stretched out waiting for you. This humble God, Augustine says, you don't find anywhere else. And can you see that because Augustine comes to love this humble God, he tries to become a humble person? He doesn't decide, I need to be humble. 
and then fail to do it, he falls in love with the God who comes to be beside us and then tries to be the kind of person that you find beside you when you need them, the humble God. Um, Augustine, um, how much more can I tell you? I could, how, how, how am I doing? I'm nearly there. Um, there are all kinds of parts of Augustine's theological legacy which have been deeply damaging. Surely if he was a holy person, everything he did should have had a great impact. It should have been, had an impact for the good, and it didn't. He's a really, really mixed heritage. Some of the things he said about the relationships between men and women, some of the ways in which he used his um, increasing power to uh, almost force conversions, some of the things he said about um, uh, what happens to people who aren't baptised, um, had massively damaging legacies. Um, uh, so, um, partly because Augustine didn't know that everybody was going to be reading Augustine and making up their theology on the basis of him. So be careful makes me want to put this microphone down straight away. Okay, just pay attention to God, not to Jane, okay, is what I'm going to suggest. Um, but, uh, but Augustine's, um, so Augustine's holiness is giving us this picture, somebody falling more and more in love with God. He says that when he started off as a young man, he would say um, to God, um, make me good, but not just yet. Because he thought goodness was probably going to mean giving up everything that he really was passionate about. He had a kind of negative understanding of God. And then he says he went through the next phase, which was saying to God, if you need me to be good, you'll have to make me good. Give what you command and command what you like, he said to God. But then he went even beyond that to the point where he was simply ravished by the beauty of God. So it wasn't so much anymore about what I have to do. It was about who I am encountering and who is shaping my life. Um, let's see if I can find that passage. Um, it's, it's, it, again, Google this. If you Google the opening line, I have learnt to love you late, O beauty so ancient and so new. I have learnt to love you late. Um, I searched for you in the world outside myself and fell on the lovely things of your creation. You were with me but I was not with you. So there's this humble God waiting beside him all the time, and Augustine's busy searching outside. You were with me, but I was not with you. You called to me. Your radiance enveloped me. You shed your fragrance about me. I drew breath, and now I gasped for your odor. I tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am inflamed with love of your peace. Now that's not somebody who's given up his passions. That's not somebody who's reducing himself to the minimum so he doesn't do any harm. This is somebody absolutely ravished by God. And that's where Augustine wants us to get to. The more we strive to be good on our own, the smaller and harder and more worried we get to be. But when we encounter this humble God next door who calls us, who is utterly utterly beautiful and ravishing. The more Augustine opens up, the more life opens up, um, the more holiness is not um, a chore, but a delight and a joy because it's encountering God. So perhaps holiness as a passion for God, I'd like to throw into your series as you think about holiness, not settling for less than this glorious beauty 
as Isaiah says, why spend money for what is not bread when you don't have to spend anything and encounter the glory and beauty of God? Okay, I, I, you know, I, there is a lot more. So find me after coffee and ask me more. Um, or go away and read Augustine's Confessions. As I say, some of it's really, really tricky. Um, so just read the story and get the sense of this young man who's ravished by the loveliness of God in a way that transforms the whole of his life and therefore other people's lives. What God gives you, he never gives you for yourself, not just for yourself. Everything God gives is for sharing. So imagine the effect if everybody in this room went out enraptured by the beauty of God. And just imagine that pouring out through Nottingham and wherever else you might come from. Um, so maybe just a couple of things to think about for our own practice. Um, one of the things is this complex and evolving struggle that Augustine had with ideas around sin and guilt and grace. Make me good, but not yet. If you give it to me, I'll try and do it. To this point where actually he's overwhelmed by the love of God. Um, he becomes a theologian of the grace of God. We don't have to, and we can't, save ourselves. You don't need me to say that. You know that with your brains. Do you know it with your heart? Do you know it with your gut? Do you know it all the way through you? God has done everything. God has done everything. God has done everything that ever needs to be done to bring you home to God. You don't need to do it, okay? You do need to respond because, by goodness, this is life-changing. This is glorious, glorious stuff. So not making ourselves good by our own willpower, but in our absolute helplessness and shame, turning to that endless source of grace and forgiveness, which is God in Jesus Christ. So one, how do we deal with our guilt and our shame? Will we let God deal with it? Two, um, Augustine comes to learn um, what our reading from Isaiah tells us. God doesn't want to make us pay. God doesn't want to take away from us all the things that make life worth living. God is not marking our efforts out of ten. One of the things I hate about being a lecturer is I do mark people's efforts out of ten. Um, God is not doing that. Augustine says um, that this humble God is the one waiting for us. Waiting for us to clock when we finally realize we can't do this on our own anymore. Um, we let ourselves go into the loving arms of God and then suddenly we arise and are filled again with that sense of freedom and delight and joy. And then this final insight that we've already looked at, um, that God and humanity are not enemies. We don't have to give up on the things that we love and desire in order to please a stern God as we strive for this holiness. Instead, we find that it's in God that all our desires find fulfillment. God is the most beautiful, exciting, fulfilling thing. And out of God comes all that is beautiful and true. So as we encounter truth and beauty in our world, what we're seeing is aspects of God. When we look at them, we rejoice. 
we say, there, that's teaching me more about God. We don't say, I mustn't look at anything lovely anymore because I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian now, I've got to be world-denying. Whose world is it? We're denying the world, we're denying its creator. And Augustine gives us this profound insight that we can befriend our desires, that if you love God first, all other desires fall into place and become servants of that one great beauty. So holiness, as I say, as a passion for God, not settling for less than this glorious beauty. Why spend your money for what is not bread? Can I pray for us? Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them one, few, company, and many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did, both individually and in our lives together, so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening. Thank you.